As with everything in life, one wants to see growth, expansion, and evolution, including the number of listens of this podcast. We'd like to see growth and expansion. So tell your friends. If you enjoy this, spread it by word of mouth, send links, tweet about it, uh, and it'll keep happening. We'll keep doing them. Hey everyone and welcome back to The Front Lounge with Kongos. This is episode 13. It's the four of us and we're going to talk about breaking news now. Um, We announced an album called 1929 and a TV show, an episodic docuseries called Bus Call. Neither of them are out yet, but they will be in the future. Yeah, I mean, these uh, ideas and these sort of creations are months and years in the making for us and we've been waiting a long time to announce them and so we're happy to be able to do a tweet or do an Instagram post (laughs) and let uh, our fans and followers in on what we're up to and slowly it's going to be a very slow rollout we want you to get excited but we don't want you to expect that tomorrow it's all going to fall on your lap we're going to be pacing ourselves here yeah if you really think about it it's it's 14 billion years in the making (laughs) this has been our first actual breaking news on this podcast because usually it's just like complete bullshit that we're doing that and if you hear clicking in the background of this podcast it's because we have one of our video editors right now working on one of the episodes typing up notes on each of the clips so that's what that clicking sound is yeah the basketball thing's pretty pretty exciting because um we've been capturing footage since we started touring you know years ago but really we we had a full-time videographer since 2014 almost every single tour and so a lot of things have happened and a lot of them have been captured and it's it's funny to see how this series that we're making you kind of want it to be scripted you want to tell a story you want there to be an arc to it and it's very hard to manufacture that because stuff just fucking happened. <laughs> and now we're trying to piece it all together and make the story. So how that all unfolds and then watching it later is pretty kind of interesting for us since we've forgotten a lot of what happened. You know, three years ago, I don't remember much what happened. <laughs> yeah, we were watching through uh, dailies, as we're calling them, basically cut down versions of each day yesterday. And it's funny because half the time you weren't actually in them because the cameraman was off with like Dylan and Jesse or Danny and Jesse and not me and Dylan or you know any grouping so you didn't actually see any of that day happen so it's been weird getting to see a day I was in in time uh, occur from a different angle and watch that all Mm. you know play out I think it's also interesting having now mapped it out using the new like the mind map program or the post-it notes that we put up on the wall like a, a crazy um, crime solving mystery um, the fact that the four years basically condensed now into these 10 20 to 30 minute episodes it really is a story that someone could have written you know when we st- when you start looking back on it it has its arcs and its downs and ups and yeah I mean it's um, not Homer's Odyssey but <laughs> it's you know, first part, second part, and third part. We've been using this mind map software, uh, an online one called Coggle.it, Coggle.it. And it is funny because it looks like the musings of a madman seeing one of our tour days or tour days mapped out. It looks like an episode of Homeland, you know, you you walk into to Carrie's apartment and there's red string, you know, connecting all kinds of unrelated things. <laughs> You know, it's been another funny thing, I think, for all of us to think about is with Jesse's baby now, Eve, when when she grows up, 
she's going to be able to watch the docu-series about her dad that her dad and her, his brothers made. Mm. And not only that, there's going to be, we have close to 100 terabytes of raw footage. She's never going to watch it. She's not going to want to. But if she wanted to know about Jesse, she'd have hours and hours of ability to psychoanalyze him. The years leading up to her existence. That's why it's going to be edited. She'll see the the edited version, which will be slightly less embarrassing than the unedited version. <laughs> well, that's what happens in storytelling anyway. When Dad tells us his stories of uh, the you know good old sixties and seventies rock star days, I'm sure they're edited. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you cut out all the boring days. Um, and then I sat in my living room for the 12th day in the row and tried to write a song. <laughs> well, that's, that is something that we're actually trying to do in the pacing of this series is w- when we started working on this, we had all kinds of ideas about what the show was going to be. You know, we're thinking kind of travel series. And then we started realizing we're never going to do it better than Anthony Bourdain or any of these great, uh, you know, people that have been doing travel shows. So what we decided we were going to focus on was showing what our experience was like on the road in a relatively unfiltered way because we've just become so bored with watching these uh, album release documentaries or you know making the album things where it's literally just a bunch of artists patting themselves on the back mm-hmm. yeah, and you know I'm not like we're going to pat ourselves on the back and do all of that but it we really wanted to show a fairly realistic portrayal of life on the road for a small medium sized band like us and also just the you know any any tv show that we watch ultimately the story is important but it kind of becomes secondary to the character and the sort of this little family or this group of people that you become invested in you know good or bad in a tv show mm-hmm. and uh so we started to see that really between us four as brothers and then the kind of extended family of the crew these guys we've been traveling with for years a lot of them spending 24 hours a day in the same space working together partying together uh, that that becomes a sort of extended family and that's the quote you know quote list of characters so uh, I think you know we don't want to talk too much about it before it's actually out but you know we'll be teasing it now and um, letting you in on the sort of release plan of all this as it comes together and uh, bus call life on tour it's pretty exciting yeah and a lot of people have been asking about you know the music or making comments on the fact that the uh, we mentioned so many songs um we have a lot of songs and each episode is going to feature new songs and you know, the bed music and the score is also going to be done by us. So that's all still kind of a process. We're trying to figure out exactly how uh, we use that music, how it's released and all that. So um, if if our announcements are a little bit nebulous, that's basically why. <laughs> it's also been fun just from the uh, recording side, I think, for all of us seeing this as a vehicle for different kinds of songs because I think we got hung up in, and people do tend to get hung up in thinking about songs for radio or for synchronizations and that sort of thing and now we can have a song that's a little off the wall or left field and say well it works perfectly for a scene that we're trying to cut together or a particular vibe we're trying to create so it's freed us up in our recording and our writing a bit where we're not necessarily always thinking about commerciality in the in the simplest sense of the word or or just if you think of a song for an album it is usually think of it being a complete thing like a circular idea kind of uh whereas for um video or for when you're putting it to 
as a soundtrack you can be open-ended i find you don't need to you don't need to finish it in the same way you can just be an open-ended kind of vibe or emotion that you're working on yeah i well if you if you know our music that's been out you know so far and you heard traveling on from lunatic and that was your only impression or your first impression of us you would have an entirely different picture of us as a band versus come with me now and i think just purely relatively you know the singles or the hits or whatever those are the ones that get heard by most people but um we there's a, there's quite a breadth to our style of music you know we can have an acoustic ballad and then we can have a sort of banger like i'm only joking or come with me now and they they all serve a purpose you know in our live show they serve a purpose in our sort of creative outlet and they will also serve a purpose in this tv show because there's everything from drama to um you know emotional scenes to comedy to straight up energy in bus parties so so we just know none of our we're gonna have to figure out how we do that because at our bus parties we play exclusively Katy Perry, Katie and, Perry Rihanna. and Rihanna and that's extremely expensive to license so we might have to just overdub some of our own like Dutch electro music or something maybe we can talk to Epic our label because they you know they'll cut us a break on some of their other artists and we can you know play the latest track that features some sort of rear end you know bouncing on on the video (laughs) as the music video um so the other big news obviously are the bus calls we've announced an album uh for us they're kind of tied together because a lot of the songs are featuring on the show and and vice versa um but like dylan was saying it is it vice versa vice versa vice Vice versa always reminds me of the movie magicians yeah. With um, Tig Tig uh, Tig Schwil- Schwiller, Alan Arkin, right? Alan Arkin and yeah, and you can't, can't, yeah. This is total aside, but you can't find that movie anywhere. Mm. The only place I've been able to find it is like on eBay, some used DVD, mm. and someone's <laughs> charging sixty bucks for it or something. He's like saying that. they're they're magicians, and he's saying he's pro- propositioning a guy to be his uh, partner as a magician. So he says we could be Max and Hugo, or Hugo and Max, or vice versa. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's a hidden gem, that movie. So if you can find it anywhere, tell us where you found it and then watch it. Um, what were we talking about? Oh, yeah, the album. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, we won't talk about the album too much, but it's just to, to say that it's been really, I don't know about you guys, but this has been one of the most fun to work on musically, I think. I think so, yeah. I think there's been a few elements that have made it different from any album we've done so far. And most importantly, I think the space that we're recording in, you know, we're we're renting this place in L.A. that's really got a nice sound to it. You know, we had Mick um, and some of the other guys from our crew come out and work on the treatment of the room to get it sounding in a certain way. It's big, high ceilings, and they put up these baffles. And so it's comparative to our phoenix studio which was intentionally dead there's carpet on the walls it's just there's no reverberation in the room intentionally to control the sound and that produces a certain kind of sound whereas now we're working with a space that has a sound and it it leads you in an entirely different direction the drums sound different the amps sound different vocals sound different so that's been kind of exciting and then danny's sort of obsession and foray into analog synths uh, have been a little bit exciting for all of us because, you know, having worked on computers as far as we can remember and the whole sort of advent of soft synths and everything 
coming generated from the computer, you know, gets you in a certain mindset. And then all of a sudden you hear these electronics, these raw electronics that make sound. And it's kind of a, it's very exciting. And we were trying to use them in a different way, in an organic way and blend them with organic instruments. I think the thing you're saying about this, the high ceilings in the room, particularly where we've been recording drums is, We were in a bit of a habit, and I think a lot of bands do this, where you record drums pretty dry and dead, and then you put them in a room virtually, you know, using one of those reverb plugins that we've talked about in the past. And now they're in an actual room that has a, a natural sound to it, and it's just amazing how much better a real room sounds than even the most expensive uh emulation of a room also we have multiple rooms the you know the the big room and then the guitar amp room and the bathroom and all those things that we've moved the drums around into different rooms to get different sounds uh and all actually done vocals in different rooms and had guitar amps in different rooms whereas the last few albums were really everything was recorded in that one room so any alterations in the sound had to come post yeah as opposed to getting them organically yeah i mean i we all have turned off digital reverbs as well i think yeah. now that you can record a room even whatever you're recording if it's drums or guitars or vocal you can put the bathroom mic on and just pick up that room and we should <laughs> tell people a little bit about that uh mick our front of house engineer who's been helping out with uh, with that said when we first came in rented this place he's like we're going to use this bathroom for something eventually <laughs> he walked into it he knew it sounded good so eventually we he set up a microphone that uh is it's next to the room where we have all the guitar amps so whenever right we record, the toilet yeah so whenever we record the guitars now we record this microphone that's set up in the bathroom we call it the lavi mic as in the lavatory mic mm. and it's a really cool sound of well, just he, this. he ran downstairs one day and he put the mic uh patched the mic in came back up and he said pull up channel 17 and he said i knew that fucking toilet would sound good (laughs) (laughs) yeah well if you want that shitty guitar sound we got covered (laughs) um the other thing is and this may be getting into too much detail for most of our listeners but uh in the bathroom is a under it's a closet that's under the stairwell and that's where we ended up putting the bass amp because it just it re- reverberates in such a cool way and it emphasizes the right aspects of the low end. So the bass amp's in there and, and you know some microphones in there to capture it. And we're just getting fucking killer bass sounds on this album. And it's all been that little practice Fender, you know, the Fender Rumble practice amp that we use for kind of acoustic shows. We had all these ideas that we were going to try different bass amps and different bass heads and um, cabinets and stuff and now we just set up this little practice amp in that room and it's got the perfect sound and we kind of haven't deviated from it. This kind of reminds me you're doing all this kind of guerrilla style of recording and making whatever you have work. Uh, Reminds me of Dad telling us that you know when he, he was one of the first people in England at the time to build a home studio that produced hit records and he had several you know sound engineers come into his basement area at his house in london and tell him he was crazy and there's mm, no way you can build a studio the in helios space. guy said that specifically he was kind of an engineering genius he did the he's built some famous eqs and and stuff like that and he said yeah this will never work yeah, and they he di- didn't stop him obviously from doing that, and they ended up producing several top ten records out of that studio. I mean, our, our dads, yeah. But then also uh, Dexy's Midnight Runners did some work there, and a bunch of other people that worked yeah. with in that studio. Def Leppard and Mel Brooks did 
did one of his songs for the History of the World, I think he did there. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cat Stevens also recording there, I think. Gary was. Newman. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, the uh, the story he had about putting the um, tambourine on the big speaker, the, the speaker that they said that they oh, were yeah. gonna, uh, they didn't care if they blew it up. And so they put a tambourine in the studio on top of the speaker and just blasted a like a kick drum sound, basically, through the... Mm. speaker and blew the speaker and it bounced the tambourine up and down on top of the speaker and they recorded that it was like the humanized fader on uh midi quantize <laughs> if you check it out our dad actually has the the uh, guinness book of world record for being the first to use a sample on a commercial record for he's gonna step on you again which was pretty cool yeah i think they've wrongly i mean it's very cool but i think they've wrongly attributed that I, I think, think they the, distinguish between a record. A commercial uh, record and it being used because you know yeah. the idea of a sample has been used for yeah like since uh, recording started obviously yeah. but the fact that it was used on a commercial album yeah, 19, or record so basically our dad invented you know sampling so mm. I mean <laughs> you no can blame deal. him yeah. <laughs> he gets paid royalties from Jay Z and yeah. Dr Dre and everyone now on you everything the, that they ever do people at the BBC were messing around with um, tape loops in the 60s uh, not commercially you know but it, they were doing they would get like six tape machines and make these really long loops around the room so they would need massive rooms to run these huge loops because there would be you know a hundred yards of tape going around <laughs> that they'd tape together to make these long loops I thought like you might actually believe that saying about Jay-Z <laughs> yeah, oh, no, I was kidding about the, the hip-hop royalties that my dad gets <laughs> So I think it could be a good transition to music only. Uh, we didn't have anything written down for this week, but you're talking about all this tape loop ideas, and it reminds me of this composer called Steve Reich, mm-hmm. and he has a piece called Music for 18 Musicians that we'll put a link up to, and it's exactly what it sounds like. It's a piece of music written for 18 musicians, mm-hmm. and it sounds very electronic, uh, but it's all performed entirely live and it's very loop based but not actually looped so you get this impression that you're listening to a kind of experimental electronic person messing around with looping small little sections over and over and the interplay of those different loops but it's all performed live continuously um, continuously it's like 60 minute piece yeah. or something like that and it's i can imagine it actually being a very hard piece to perform for an ensemble because I mean, it's very repetitive. You've got like a person singing in a note going, uh, 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 for 45 minutes straight, basically going up or down one note every now and then. It's a really fascinating piece. It's a really uh, entrancing piece to listen to. Yes, it's a, there's a good group who does, I mean, for his stuff for percussionists, so percussion, we'll post a link to them as well. They're pretty amazing. They're a group of four percussionists. Sometimes they work with other uh, percussionists and they do similar things. Yeah, it, they have. They'll have super long phrases, you know, like whatever they are, really long phrases where, you know, they'll each be in a different time signature, and then every twenty-seven bars they'll line up again. Now I wonder. I have to look into this, but it sounds like sometimes his music was done like retroactively, as if he'd messed around with the computer and a sampler. And, you know, played two different uh, timings against each other right. and said, well, let's see if we can make human beings do this. I don't, <laughs> I, I, he might be, I, I'd have to look him up. I forget exactly when his era was. Who's whether. the guy who does the metronomes? That's the lazy version of it. Um, 
The, John Cage? Does he do the metronomes where he puts like 180 metronomes on stage and he starts them all at once and they, they then unalign and then they eventually align again? Is that him? It could be him. I'm not sure. John, John Cage is one to... He has a piece also where... It's like 11 minutes of silence. Yeah, it's four minutes. The conductor or the performer work, walks out, places a piece of sheet music and then stands there for like four minutes. I think it's called four minutes, 33 seconds, something like that. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it seems silly, but if you put it in the context of when that did it, it, come out, it was, uh, you know, he was just trying to push the boundaries of where things are at. It's, uh, or he was like us. He was like, we were like, how do we get content? Oh, let's do a podcast. And he took it to the next step, <laughs> which is just, I'll just do nothing. It's Georgi uh, Ligeti. Oh, Who okay. does the metronome thing? Yeah, Poema Symphonico uh, is for 100 metronomes. There's a video on YouTube. We'll post it. You can watch um, that piece. And I you can like listen to your act, life go by. I feel like the act of tweeting has sort of, sort of eliminated the need for all these experimental you know, pieces of art. Because <laughs> they're, if they're exercises in futility. futility or sort of acknowledging the arbitrariness of most art, you know, then Twitter just kind of removes that impulse because yeah. it's, you know that what you're doing is so meaningless. That's why Twitter should be funded. By the CIA. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's a, you know, there's an amazing movie called Untitled oh, really? while we're talking about like experimental music and that sort of thing. Well, that's so per- yet the end piece of that movie is so percussion. They perform that. Oh, okay, yeah. That, so go check out this movie called Untitled. It's got Adam Goldberg in it. It is hilarious, but if you are the arty-farty like jazz school, music school nerd, you're probably going to be incredibly offended by it because <laughs> it's so spot on in making fun of you know, artists. I'm sure they would love it. I'm sure that the no, I've played it. I've told people about it in that world. Yeah. In fact, even Johnny Marlowe, you know, because he's a, a mm. photographer, he, was, he, was, he was like, "Oh, this is a little close to home." <laughs> <laughs> it's so accurate, though. Yeah. I mean, it's clearly somebody from that world made that movie because it's so accurate. Well, that just to finish on that music, the Steve Reich or the other piece that's at the end of that movie. Um, I think one of the reasons it's so entrancing is that when you have human beings creating this kind of music that is repetitive and requires almost a trance state to perform it, that state that the performer enters of just repeating the same phrase over and over again, it becomes sort of like a mantra or a trance. And that, that I think, comes across in the recording where it has a sort of sympathetic effect on the listener where you enter that state as well. I th- that's, I, we can't end it now because I think that kind of brings up an interesting point because Steve Reich is a 20th century composer. I, I, can you just, Dylan? Dylan has become our official researcher. <laughs> uh, just find out when he is so I can not sound like an idiot. But it's funny that 20th century Western music has kind of come around to this trance idea of these repetitive things and if you go listen to like ancient music from central africa you know it's been preserved probably for hundreds if not thousands of years pygmy music particularly Mm. has all this the exact same uh, feeling to it of just almost mechanical but human mechanical it's really interesting stuff 1960s Mm. same era as monty young terry riley philip gloss he's like the good version of philip gloss Say that on fighting words. Say yeah. that in a hundred times in a row, and you've got a Philip Glass piece. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you have right. to say it backwards uh, well, a second time. There's one. If, to give you an idea of that movie, Untitled, there's one line which kind of sums it up, which is just perfect. And it's he's this guy's on a rant, and he says that harmony was a um, 
a conspiracy a capitalist conspiracy. A capitalist conspiracy, conspiracy invented to sell pianos, <laughs> um, and, which is one of the funniest lines in the movie. All right, moving on to the music business. Um, a long time ago, our dad had this tape, an, a quarter-inch tape, which is a big reel of tape, if you can imagine it, and he played it for us, and it was a bootlegged recording of the Trogs, who are a famous band that you'll probably know the song Wild Thing. Wild Thing. That's, yeah, they that's wrote the, the original, and then Hendrix yeah, did it. Yeah, so they're the original version. version of that. And our dad had a copy of this tape that's got to be one of the first viral things to ever occur, because it was in the 70s that he got this tape, and it went from studio to studio in London, Basically, engineers copying, you know, tape to tape and passing it around. And it's a recording of the Trogs in the studio trying to follow up Wild Thing, trying to come up with a song to follow up that hit. And an argument and the hi- mm. hilarity ensues. Well, yeah, because they didn't know they were being recorded. The engineer right. left the tape running and it's, it's them basically under a huge amount of stress trying to follow this hit up and they just can't get it right. And, you know... Some of them are more skilled or intelligent than others, and uh, it's re- it's really funny. Like it be- had all these phrases that came out of it, you know, people basically mocking them. Mm. Um, what is a wobble board? <laughs> That's one of the f- one of the uh, one of the engineers in the studio or the producer says to the drummer, "What if we just put a wobble board on it?" <laughs> and well, I think it was like a like an actual thing that made a wobbling a sound. wobbly sound. Yeah, yeah. it's a board. You just go. Whoa, whoa, whoa. It's got to sound like that. Huh. So it was I mean, like the so original. It's just a wobble board. The original memes in the studio world because our dad yeah. tells us stories like everyone would just have these things like, "Why don't we just put a twelve string on it?" Mm. Like that became a thing that every engineer and everyone having a difficult time in the studio would just say it's quote been, lines from right. this tape. It's kind of like little, like turn the snare up. Like little, yeah. you know, sprinkle some fucking fairy dust on it. Uh, <laughs> I think you know what it encapsulated was this frustration. Uh, you know, we've all felt it in the studio where you just can't get something to work. You know, you know there's something there. You know the song's got something, and no matter what you try, it's just not capturing. And it's like a desperate thing. Like, well, let's just try this. <laughs> you know, and uh, or like the producers trying to. When the producer doesn't have the language to communicate with a musician and he's trying to tell the drummer, you know, split your hands mm. so that one's playing that one tom-tom and the other one's playing on the other tom-tom. It's like, that, that's why we don't have a producer is because there, I know there are good producers in this world, <laughs> but uh, it has to be the right language. And there's already four of us who are, you know, know how to speak to each other. And now I try adding another person trying to communicate music to us in a language that we may or may not understand yeah. <laughs> or they are may, may or may not understand it's like it's just too many cooks it's crazy how viral it actually went because even though our dad i think was one of the first to get that tape it meant that everyone who had a studio basically had to make copies of these tapes so all the studios in england and europe started getting these copies of the trogs tapes and they were kind of like the running joke but it, it wasn't just that they were making fun of them it's that everyone could relate to it yeah and there's such a probably a foreign concept for people to you know a leaked tape now is just like oh what's the leaked tape of the day you're expecting marketing strategy yeah Yeah. it's on youtube we'll post a link um oh yeah so speaking of faked leaked tapes 
I asked if anyone watched the Super Bowl, the little kid that mm. is in that the selfie with Justin Timberlake. I no. said, what? What is it? Uh, okay, so I mean, I know what the Super Bowl is, but what? Do you, what so do you obviously, mean? Justin Timberlake was the halftime performance, and he runs up into the crowd and he's singing. And there's this kid who appears to be trying to get a selfie or look up on his phone and see what's going on. He seems kind of out of it. And then he ends up taking a selfie of, with, with Justin Timberlake. And when I saw this, my immediate thought was, what is this an ad for? Because like, before it even had chanced to grow, it was trending on Twitter as, this is the biggest meme of the Super Bowl ever. Mm. And it just seems so manufactured. So I came in and said, that, like, what's this an ad for? And Jesse goes, well, I think it's an ad for Justin Timberlake. <laughs> because, you know, it's, it's hard to the figure guy, out. He kind of looks like a young Justin Timberlake. I mean, what well, you have well, to realize is that nothing, almost nothing on social media that gets to the trending or, you know, gets uh, widely spread is accidental. It's all paid for it's all marketing mm. it's all contrived yeah I'd so need, i'd need to see what this even is to, to uh, it's not even worth seeing it's just interesting that it seemed like it was for, i mean before it had a chance to actually trend you know it takes a little moment for something to spark and become the number one thing mm. it was like nbc or whoever the the super bowl was on had set this up or justin timberlake had set this up because now a billion people are going to see this you know, innocuous selfie that's not actually selling anything except for it's selling the new Justin yeah, I mean, Timberlake it's album. Good on Justin yeah, Timberlake's it's marketing team. They're they're manipulating that stuff. Yeah, really uh, well. Is he just trying to be a total fucking dick though? Because you have you seen Prince's what Prince said about virtual duets? He was like entirely opposed to them. He he said never do this with me. Never use my image. This is why I want complete creative control. He, he will. He thought they were demonic. He was like, because he's, he's a Jehovah's Witness or whatnot. And so now, like, that's known. Prince is entirely opposed to duets, and then they go and do it. Who yeah. did it? I didn't even watch Justin the Super Bowl. Timberlake. They did a, a thing with Prince. I, well, like, he was talking about a hologram. Oh, it was a hologram. Prince had said. He's not, Categorically, yeah. he didn't want to do. It. I believe even Sheila E, his drummer, right? The from mm. uh, what are they called? The new the revolution. Yeah, the new revolution or power. Yeah, shit. Well, I can't remember Prince the name. Prince and of the this. revolution. Prince yeah. and the revolution. Yeah, uh, saying categorically, he was opposed to ever doing like a duet with a hologram or being used in that way. Yeah, he but said. He said if I was meant actually- to play with Duke Ellington, I'd be in the same era. I'd, be, I'd have been born. Yeah, you know. So like that's just weird to me. Like that. There's an artist you supposedly respect. And you admire, and then you just go fuck over his wishes. I can't even remember whether they actually did that because I think that they were planning on it, and then he might have. No, there was a Prince part. Of the, well, I, I didn't actually see it. It's <laughs> <laughs> just all. We should yeah. have a fact checker because it seems I like just, a. I didn't just watch a the Super dick Bowl. Move, did, did, who watched the Super Bowl? I watched. I well, oh, I, I, I went to a Super Bowl party and we. Ate snacks and had some beers. I went to he the backed village. Out of, he backed out of using Prince hologram at the last minute. But he there was a Prince playback section or something like that i have no i didn't watch it so yeah okay so it wasn't a hologram but they definitely were projecting massive images of prince singing i'm i i don't think prince liked him i think this was like (laughs) some sort of like pissing on his grave type thing it was weird yeah i don't know i it i'll 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 say this that it does bug me when you see sometimes an artist's old recordings that a record label decides we're gonna 
remaster, remix, mm. do all these with. And they obviously have the rights to do that because that's what a record contract does. But it is sometimes really annoying yeah. when you know what it's like if they found your old demos and like, hey, check out this new song from Congress. And you're going, I didn't put that out for a reason because it's right. you yeah. know, not ready. I was at the, uh, I didn't see, I only saw part of it. Uh, um, I was at the Village Idiot at a, at a British pub and they were all watching the Super Bowl. That was funny. But um, they, I only saw a, a bit of the game and then, the part where the richest man in the world acted in a commercial, Jeff Bezos was in his own fucking commercial. Uh, it, it was on mute, so I, whatever he did, he acted badly on mute. And then um, they, I, there was a Nirvana song being used in some commercial with a little piano version of it. It was just everything about it was depressing. Every like the entire world is an ad now. It's. Well, yeah, I mean, look, we say that from, like, our song is brought been... to you by Congress. <laughs> yeah, hey, listen, this, I'm happy with hypocrisy if it pays us. <laughs> yeah, I saw a bunch of controversy about the Nirvana thing. I, you know, people... Oh, so but that, did, that did touch a nerve? I think people are doing this now as intentionally. I think if you're an advertising agency, like, how do we... The ad has got limited impact. Nobody can take in... Their brains are already stuffed with nonsense. So how do you get them to take in something for 30 seconds? Well, you, you get them to talk about it afterwards. So you intentionally push, you know, in not insignificant buttons and then get people to talk about it afterwards. So it's, it's so all manufactured. To clarify the Prince thing, they didn't use a hologram, but they did use a big uh, video wall, basically, or projection screen um, where he was singing along and... Uh, people are still upset about it. In a 1998 interview with Guitar World magazine, Prince was asked directly about using of digital editing to, cre quote, create a situation where you could jam with any artist from the past. He was not a fan. He said, that's the most demonic thing imaginable. Everything is as it is, is as it is, and it should be. If I was meant to jam with Duke Ellington, we would have lived in the same age, that whole virtual reality thing. It's really demonic. I am not a demon. Also, what they did with that Beatles song, Free as a Bird, manipulating John Lennon's voice to have him singing across the grave, that'll never happen to, happen to me. To prevent that kind of thing from happening is another reason why I want artistic control. Yeah. That's unequivocal. So, Justin Timberlake, you're just, just why couldn't you just skip the Prince part? You're just a bad Prince. <laughs> <laughs> I think well the reason they went for it is because Prince is from Minneapolis the Super Bowl was in Minneapolis who but cares it's Prince respect his wishes like who fucking cares like, yeah well that I mean that's look that's been at the heart of it because he's had a big dispute his estate has been a massive dispute about that very issue that is just yeah everything about people who manage estates they just annoy me but <laughs> What else grinds your gears, Dan? <laughs> <laughs> it is just, it's pretty remarkable that people just, like, how, how does it not strike you that you're a guy who supposedly admires this guy? You, you know, he... Get no respect! It is weird. It's just like, I like everything about him except the part where he said I couldn't duet with him after he died. <laughs> At our next concert, we're going to do a duet with Justin Timberlake. Um... If, if Paul McCartney specifically asked us to stop doing Beatles covers, we would, do, we would stop. <laughs> uh, don't hold me to that. All right. Let's move on to member berries. This is a specific member berry I have, and it's kind of vague because I must have been five or six years old when it happened. So it's like that kind of cloudy memory. But I went for a walk with my mom around our little neighborhood in London and I got bitten by a dog. It was like a little white 
uh, Maltese Falcon five. I mean, we were living in London still, so I was younger than seven, but I'm guessing five or six. I could walk then. Um, got bitten by this dog. So I have this, you know, like kind of weird, just traumatic memories you don't have a real recollection of. And then I remember going home and crying and going to cry to my dad and Def Leppard was sitting in the lounge <laughs> with him because they, you know, uh, for those of you that don't know, our dad worked on the Def Leppard record Pyromania and did all the drum programming on a Fairlight computer with um, Robert Mutt Langer, who mm. was their producer and an old friend of our dad's because he was South African also. So our dad worked on that album for a long, long time because Mutt Langer was a, a legendary, you know, spend a lot of time in the studio type of guy. So they were over there having some preliminary meeting or something or other or discussing the album and I come in crying about a dog that just bit me and there's Def Leppard. Of course at the time I didn't know it was Def Leppard. Mm. But, but it's it is kind of it's a funny introduction to that cuz I I I must have met them too but I I don't I think I was too young to really remember it. Yeah. Um but then fast forward like 20 something years um, in 2006, they did a tribute album they, where they covered all the songs of their kind of heroes. And one of those songs was our dad's song, He's Gonna Step On You Again. They did a version of it. So they came through Phoenix and were playing um, the arena there or the um, amphitheater there. And we went to see them and they, you know, they were kind of cool about it and had us backstage and chatted to us and caught up with our dad and everything like that. And I don't think we asked them about the dog biting memory. <laughs> I'm sure they don't remember it, but uh, it was a full circle. That's what that song Pour Some Sugar On Me is about. It's an ancient <laughs> remedy for dog bites. <laughs> um, so let, let's move on because actually we're going to keep this podcast relatively quick because we're doing another one after this for next week um so our special guest yeah so our favorite piece of gear for the week since we've been talking about bus call and filming and all that is i'll let dashi danny tell you about this okay it's the pixie recorder p-i-x-e and it's a thing you um plug into your digital slr you take the hdmi out and you can record you know higher quality footage and more importantly you can record multiple channels of audio because when we were trying to do this bus call stuff on a budget usually when you're trying to get four or six channels of audio there's an audio guy you know with radios and stuff like that and he's recording audio separately and then you got to go sync up that audio with your video and that's an entire mission so this little device allowed us to record multiple channels of audio and saved us a bunch of time so the the camera we use these sony cameras that are pretty high quality but they're capable of more than you can do with them just built in so uh our camera guys had this sort of apparatus where you it's like a like a cage a frame that you put the camera on and then you can attach all kinds of accessories including this recorder you can attach extra batteries you can attach microphones and lights and stuff like that and it makes it look like a much fancier camera it's a it's a great piece of gear it's also a tiny bit of a curse because you go from having a very small bodied sony that you can kind of walk into anywhere and film with and not draw too much attention to Mm. eventually looking like you've got a full-on rig so immediately everyone starts looking like oh this is a actual production and it makes it a little more difficult to just kind of be a fly on the wall Mm. um so section six what's it like being in a band with your brothers Uh, we can maybe we should remove this section because it's bad yeah yeah come up with stuff there's only so much you can say. Like, we've got this question so many times. We've run out of 
all the pat answers. You know, it's a democracy of four dictators. That's, we say that every single time. And so until we come up with more one-liners, we're just going to gloss over this I'll section. tell you what it's like. It's like going into um, machine mode in interviews when people start asking those questions. I fall into a deep sleep and I just start, like, repeating the same answers that I've asked or that have been asked of me in every other interview. <laughs> it's like that video of Bill Clinton in the 90s when uh, somebody kept the camera rolling in an interview and they were doing his makeup. And so it wasn't supposed to be aired or anything, but they recorded it. And he literally looks like a machine powers down. His eyes glaze over. He doesn't move at all. It's really kind of weird. That's what it feels like when we get asked, what's it like being in a band with your brothers? When you see those press junkets that uh, movie people do, that's, that's, they've got it the worst. And they just get delirious by the end of the day because they've done so many interviews. Yeah, whenever they do a compilation of politicians or celebrities fucking up in an interview i always feel a bit more sympathy for them when we've done you know a small version of that and you realize how tiring and how hard it is actually to keep it together just to answer the same question 150 I'm, times I'm, just, I'm surprised they don't it's not worse yeah no they you, you, well, you respect- the video we were watching wasn't even it wasn't just like making fun of them it was saying that they're they're all illuminati puppets and you know that they they can't answer the sometimes when they malfunction that's what we're seeing and it was just the most ridiculous conspiracy video cuz like it was really funny but obviously these people have never uh, seen what a press junket oh, looks like oh that's what you're talking about yeah mk ultra yeah. yeah, they were saying they were MK Ultra candidates yeah. or something like that. Um, <laughs> it's like, no, they've just been on the road for a yeah. week straight doing 24 hours of press. Yeah, it's, it's, until you've done that, you can't quite understand, particularly like what a political campaign goes through. It's insane. Mm. But also until you've been part of the MK Ultra program, <laughs> you can't understand. All right, so we'll finish up with our deep thoughts. And we said we're going to talk about hallucinations, but not what you, not the kind you're probably thinking of. You, you, we had a common experience that I didn't realize. You said when you were a kid, well, you tell it, you, you got pneumonia when you were... Yeah, we were traveling in South Africa, just a, a family vacation. I was a kid and I got pneumonia on the trip. Uh, like bad, bad enough that we had to cancel the vacation and uh, drive home and you know get me to care. And I remember I was hallucinating the whole trip back uh, to Johannesburg from wherever we were, somewhere near Durban. And then... Later in the week, when I was recovering, I was sleeping in bed and having these weird hallucinations where I had a incredibly weird sensation of my hands being giant, you know, resting on my stomach or on my side, and they were disproportionately huge. I mean, it was and, a physical sensation yeah, yeah, hallucination. Not, I didn't yeah. see them, but I felt them as being massive. Like, if you've ever seen that movie, uh, The Science of Sleep, where he's running around with the giant hands... It truly felt that way. And so anyway, that's always been a vivid memory of mine. Um, and I was 11 or 12 or something. And then you were saying you've had a... Yeah. I got... Um, when we were in Greece uh, in 2009, I got bitten by something. I don't know if it was related to that. I got bitten by some sort of spider on my arm. Or it could have been heat stroke. Or I was ex- messing around with fasting at the time. <laughs> Maybe I hadn't eaten in 36 hours or something like that. And... Uh, I don't know what led to it. It could be a combination of all those, all of all silly things, but it wasn't drug induced or anything like that. Um, but it was a, exactly that. It was a physical sensation of my arms and hands being sometimes miles long, you know. And yeah. Then and then they would come back and so on. Well, I have read a study where they 
analyzed the brain activity of people in, entering into trance-like or religious um, states mm. of you know deep prayer, and then being able to observe that from the outside at least, certain parts of your brain that deal with space-time perception, like the, the temporal lobe, right, that deals with spatial, right, yeah. Yeah, sp- spatial perception, receives less blood during these states. So that, you know, obviously from an objective standpoint gives a good, fairly good explanation of why you would perceive the size of your own body completely differently if you're messing with that part of the brain. Well, there's a really interesting uh, TED talk with a guy named, um, what was his name? Anil Seth. And his uh, premise is basically that our brain is constantly trying to make sense of our perceptions which are all hallucinations and that when um what we call reality is just when enough people agree on the same hallucination (laughs) and it's all about how the incoming impressions and um incoming stimulus is just made to make sense and arranged in a certain way based on your past experiences and your previous experiences so that your your things aren't constantly um frightening you basically and constantly giving you something to work out uh and formulate in your brain um you mean it does it does it relate to object permanence you know or the stages of development because the idea of language depends on on object permanence you know this idea that things don't change so because the the you're not going to name something if it changes right and and that's not actually what reality is yeah reality reality is probably amorphous or uh you know it's this continuous connected thing but we now we have to separate it into every every experience every perception is constantly changing and it's it's never the same as it was but we categorize things um kind of automatically and our brain categorize things if if they're somewhat similar so that when you see something that even though it's not the same you've categorized it and this, this automatic process where you've just put it into this box and he says he does some pretty amazing things on this ted talk where he'll he'll play a, a piece of audio to you and it sounds like a in gibberish where you can't understand exactly anything what he's saying and then he'll play you the um, unfiltered version of that audio which is someone saying something uh, in English and he'll play back the alien uh, filter to you and it's perfectly audible and uh, he does a bunch of other these things to basically to prove to you that it's based on your past uh, perception of something and once you've categorized it once you've made sense of it that now this completely new experience you can uh, use that to kind so of as it relates to this to physical sensation it definitely uh, that's the way i kind of interpreted it at the time because i was totally um fine otherwise I, you know i was you know, like i wasn't out of my mind i was ju- it was just having these physical sensations and i was kind of commenting on them to myself like oh my sense of scale has been messed up because your sense of scale is habitual your sense of how you know how big anything feels or how far anything is is habitual just like everything else so if if that habit gets interrupted well I like yeah. the oh sorry the idea of what you're saying also seems to relate to when you said that it's what we all agree on if enough people agree on this idea it's if you imagine each human being as a cell in a neural net parsing raw data and then there's an agreement 
between this network that says, okay, well, this type of data we will now classify as that. And that's obviously occurring at a micro level within our own brains, but then it's occurring at a macro level across maybe all human brains or all, all brains. So, yeah, that's really fascinating to hear that uh, described in that way, like the, the idea of reality being related to subjective agreement. Ding! <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's... I mean, he literally describes it in those words. He basically says that your brain hallucinates your conscious reality and billions of neurons in your brain are working together to generate this conscious experience and this uh, agreed-upon um, hallucination. Well, I think everyone can probably relate to that experience at least somewhat. I mean, uh, maybe I've not had it quite as extreme, but we've all had that feeling of like am I really, you know, is this how short I am or is this how tall I am? Or is this, you know, is this what the speed of walking feels like? Because there have been times where maybe sometimes it's related to a certain type of tiredness or a certain type of energy, energy, like, you know, you have too much coffee or something that basically jogs you into a slightly different state of consciousness. And your perception of space or time is just a bit off. Mm. So I've had times where I'm walking around and it feels like I'm walking in slow motion, like I'm this giant, you know, and you imagine an elephant walking or, uh, you know, in a movie when they sort of recreate a sort of a, uh, an image of a giant walking. It's like much slower. Right. Well, your and, frame rate, maybe. Yeah. I mean, I, well, I've been, when on tour, when we've done these those promo runs and you just do fly gigs uh, show fly gig show you know that's probably some of the tiredest i've been and you, I, I can see my eyeball shake you know how your eyeball shakes vibrates you get so tired that you can see it happening it slows down to the point where your eye, eyeball is vibrating and it's just vibrating too slow <laughs> yeah I, the funny thing to think about then is if this reality is based on kind of consensus Mm -hmm. Uh, even within your own brain it brings up this whole kind of blockchain type idea of (laughs) consensus ledger yeah yeah like of what who is determining what's true and false is it's done by consensus Mm -hmm. but i mean that implies then that there's some law law governing the consensus it gets very complicated but it's interesting eventually it gets into the idea of duality and unity that um, have you ever seen those uh, magic pictures? I think were, what they were called. They were kind of like pixelated pictures where you can uh, adjust your eyes and either squint your eyes or cross your eyes, and a, an image, a 3D image, pops out of it. And it can either pop out towards you or pop in towards you or sometimes you'll be seeing a spiral moving in one way um, in motion and based on however whether it's automatic or intentional based on your perception of that it could be doing it one way or the other way and it's neither it's actually both they're both happening simultaneously and that both are kind of reality both are true it's that your perception that you've now directed your attention to or not directed your attention to doesn't exist for you mm-hmm. right I mean the so uh we're, this does relate to um, it's the fact that it can be one or two things and you're choosing one side of it right because yeah if you if you like just simply draw um, an orthographic square I think that's a good example or it doesn't even have to be orthographic what's an orthographic yeah, orthographic is when there's no sense of perspective so you um, like if you use a really long lens it will compress the the depth data and you'll get effectively something orthographic where for example if you look at something very close up 
you'll see the vanishing point, right? An orthographic version of a square or of any object has no vanishing point. It's just two-dimensional. But those are very easy to wrongly interpret, to flip, or not wrongly interpret, to interpret in any way that they're going in one direction or another. Mm. Um, yeah, so based on habit, maybe, then you're going to perceive the world and every situation uh, in one way when right. maybe with a different directed attention or directed consciousness you can alter your yeah. perception and the, perceive it another way and if this is happening at such a f- fundamental level a rudimentary level of differences within your own brain of how to perceive a square mm-hmm. or the depth the 3d depth of something multiply that times a billion and then try and have any feeling about what reality is in relation to like politics yeah, or yeah. music it's, it's, well, it's, this a, it's is, kind of an absurd it's the binary idea. nature of things that we, Jesse and I were talking about this and this was a drug induced problem which is that I, you know when if on um, when, you, when you smoke marijuana you you uh, don't trust yourself and uh, that's what I reached the conclusion that at least low level OCD um, seems to be a distrust of yourself because I couldn't remember if I put the stove on or turned it off. So I kept going back and I checked it three times to check on or off, you know, because the stove can either be on or it can be off. There's no in between. And you're picking a side. And because I had zero trust in myself because my short-term memory had been short-circuited, um, I, I was unable to decide between, you know, which side of the coin it had fallen. And so you just keep fucking going back to the stove, checking to see that it's off. Well, yeah, you have, you have irrational or emotional fear interfering with... Uh, what could be described as objective reality. Like the stove mm. was off, or perhaps. <laughs> yeah. But something in you was telling but you the it problem wasn't. With your, the problem was trust in yourself. Yeah, I think that happens. Def- that's definitely amplified when you're high. Yeah. Um, but it's even the case when you're not high and in you're in a kind of mechanical state. I've noticed when I'm c- trying to rush to do something and close up the house, for example, if we're going out or if, I'm, if we're going on tour. If I'm in a rushed state where I'm doing everything just uh, very quickly and automatically, I'll get to the end of that process and get into the car and go, fuck, did I lock this? Did I do that? Did I do that? Whereas if I just calm down a tiny bit and I go up to the door and I go, I'm locking the door or I'm turning off the stove, or I am here. And then, you know, you get to the the end of the process, and you are sure of yourself. You have much more confidence in the fact that that event happened. Right. Because if you're not there... You never, you don't know. So what you're suggesting is, so is it the binary is, thing adding confusion though? Because the door can be locked or unlocked. So those are the two states that it exists in. So you have to pick one, right? Whereas you're not going to confuse things which are on a gradation. It's like, did I undercook the the omelet? Did I cook it properly or did I overcook it? You're going to remember how you cook the omelet because it doesn't <laughs> exist in two states. <laughs> or maybe I'm just arbitrarily defining. It seems like binary things cause confusion in your memory. That's my takeaway. <laughs> my my response takeaway omelet. My response to that was that ultimately everything could be considered binary because if you're talking about an omelet, you're really trying to determine is it right or is it wrong? Because there's only one right way to cook an omelet. <laughs> Everything, if it's undercooked or overcooked. And if you want the or, right way, follow curry eggs and toast on yeah. Instagram. You know, this is this is very. I'm glad this has come full circle because I I got a, a nonstick pan for that purpose. You know, I usually don't cook with nonstick pans because I who knows if they kill canaries or whatever. Um, but I couldn't take it anymore. I couldn't take not having something to cook a proper omelet in, so I caught one. 
Okay, well, FYI. Good. <laughs> well, let's end with a proverb in relation to Dylan trying to get ready to leave the house. Less haste, more speed. I think that's what the approach we're going to take with rolling out our album in bus call. Less haste, more speed. We're going to be rolling it out slowly, so be patient, but we will be, we will be feeding you guys new stuff every week, and we're very excited about it. So um, check us out on congos.com slash podcast. Uh, on Twitter and Facebook and all those evil things we're there too so uh, talk to you guys next week with a special guest bye